Ultra. Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are rowing through Disney's The Little Mermaid one minute at a time. I'm Andrew Dorowski. I'm Kester Dorowski. Today, we are joined by John, my brother, John Dorowski, uh, pop culture, well, f- former guest, right? Regular guest on the Protagonist Podcast and uh, pop culture enthusiast is not strong enough a word. Expert uh, fits the category more, right? Significant expertise. In, in pop culture. In certain fields of popular culture. Yes, not not all pop culture, <laughs> but some of the most popular of <laughs> culture. Today we are discussing Minute 64, which begins with Ursula cackling as she continues her transformation into Vanessa. And it ends with Ariel's voice being heard, vocalizing as Eric stares at a young girl walking on the beach. Who could it be? Ariel's voice? Ariel's general shape? What a mystery, everybody. Absolutely. But we just saw Ariel in the window. What's going on? Also, she doesn't have a voice right now. The mystery thickens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, minute 64 of The Little Mermaid features Eric playing his recorder in it in the night. Grimsby giving Eric some uh, fairly reasonable advice. Much, uh, not, mu- much needed advice. Yes, yes, definitely much needed. Not like the sagest of advice, but like something that Eric definitely needed to hear. Uh, Eric throwing his recorder into the ocean. Uh, because reasons, yes, uh, and an uh, not an not an Ariel, but a woman walking on the beach <laughs> with Ariel's voice. Um, Are you sure it's not an Ariel? I mean, you just... I, the mystery. I mean, <laughs> we know it's a woman with Ariel's voice. Yes. But... Can I just talk for a moment as we get into this about Grimsby's advice? It's part of the minute. I guess we can allow it. (laughs) Okay, so I have his exact quote of what he says. He says, Eric, if I may say, far better than any dream girl is one of flesh flesh and blood, one warm and caring and right before your eyes. Yes. What do you want to say about it? (laughs) Okay, so he talks about blood, and he talks about warm, which made me think warm-blooded, but aren't fish cold-blooded? Um, fish blood temperature, I think, is a little bit complicated because um, because fish live in so many different climates. Like, there's definitely cold-water fish, and if they were truly cold-blooded, that would shut them down into hibernation like it would a lizard. So I don't think that they can be totally cold-blooded. But we've also established Ariel <laughs> is almost certainly a mammal, and mammals are all warm-blooded. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure all mammals are warm-blooded. The platypus, I never know. Right? <laughs> the platypus could be doing anything as a mammal. Um, but yeah, so we would assume warm-blooded anyway. Yes. The other thing I wanted to talk about is just that pretty good advice from Grimsby. Yeah. Um, in preparation for today, I not only watched these minutes, I watched all the minutes leading up to it. And you see that early on, Eric does express that there's a real problem with him of Having this fantasy of, oh, as soon as I meet the person I'm going to love, I'll just know and we'll yeah. be instanta- yes. you know, in- instantaneous love at first sight for both of us. And so he has a real problem of, uh, in, in romance, separating fantasy from reality. Yeah, he has that romanticized yes. idea and philosophy and everything. And I think this is actually a really good moment and probably underappreciated because it's it doesn't bear through the rest of the film that much um, of Eric 
like having a nice maturity of saying like, yeah, like it, he's definitely saying, yeah, that's correct. I I really should like not focus on the fantasy and I should ignore the fact that a day ago I was all about, I'll just know it right away. And if I, if it's not that, then like it can't possibly be the right relationship. Like he is accepting that he was wrong. Right. And it's, it's showing that Grimsby like really does care about, about him. And this is maybe Grimsby's best moment. And he, it, like he's caring for, for Eric. He's also showing that he likes Ariel. Um, so which... for some reason, after she blew all the, uh, Tobacco in his face. Yeah, he likes <laughs> yeah. her d- despite that. Yeah, he likes he likes her despite that. And I mean, we we established earlier in this film weeks ago at this point that um, he like we're not exactly sure if he was favored uh, if he favored the princess of Glamorhaven or not. But like like he he's obviously like really pushing for this one too because he knows that Eric likes her. And he likes Ariel, and he wants Eric to find a girl. Well, I, with the Princess of Glarheaven, I don't know if it was necessary that he her, actually thought that they would be a good match, but he needs Eric to be married because probably also realizes, I'm not going to be around much longer to give advice. I need him to be settled and yeah. ready to be king. Yeah, so he definitely has, um, like like I said, I think this might be his, his best moment and maybe colors all of the previous interactions with Grimsby more positively, right? This is more encouraging about it. It's like, okay, he's not just trying to push him into getting married. He does care about, like, the quality of that marriage and the quality of the relationship and the quality of person that that Eric is spending time with. Um, And he wouldn't be giving this advice, I think, for somebody else, right? Right. Because... Because it wouldn't be this same advice, right? He he's recognizing Eric's interest and, and affection towards Ariel, and he's saying, like, look, I can see that you like her. Get out of your own way a little bit and accept that you like this person, right? And and don't worry about the fantasy or or as he describes it, the dream. Yes. Which like that is solid, mature advice for somebody who's reaching adulthood is like, hey, you've got a lot of dreams or fantasies or romanticized ideas about what your life is going to be like and what your relationships are going to be like. And, and at some point you need to acknowledge the reality, which can in many cases be better than the dream. If not for no other reason than because it's real, right? Yeah. Like that's a really relevant thing for somebody to know. And it, it's, it's a small little bit of this film. It's like, it's really useful advice. And like I said, it doesn't really bear out because actually Eric is in love with his fantasy girl. He just doesn't know that Ariel is the fantasy girl that, that he has been pining after. And he never actually gets to like fully make that decision and say, no, I was choosing this despite the lack of fantasy fulfillment. I, yeah. I don't know that's totally true because he does make a decision in this moment. Yes. Where he, for some reason, throws away the recorder. I know it's symbolic. Yes. But it's like, why throw that away? It's a super symbolic gesture. To throw away, I, I assume it's because he's been playing the tune that he heard yeah. her sing. And so that's been his, like, the thing he's attached to. And so, he throws it away, which also, it seems to be maybe a solid silver recorder, <laughs> the way it glints in the moonlight. Definitely metallic. Yeah, it's like, that's an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, and so we see him, he does make a decision to follow Grimsby advice and say, okay, yeah, I, I like this other girl. Uh, it's not my fantasy, but you know, she's just as good, if not better. Yeah. And then, then a split second later, he's entranced by this spell. Yeah, it's like, oh, man. <laughs> so, like, 
We have right when he makes the decision. You know, we have a split second where he's made a decision and then it's taken away from him. Yeah, yeah, and then by the time the spell is gone, he also is realizing that Ariel yeah. is the one that he was in love with. And it's like he never really gets to like fulfill this maturation. Yeah. It it kind of undercuts it um to some degree, which is like this moment is not the point of the film. <laughs> um we're giving it like a lot of gravitas because yes. because it's a good moment. Yeah. Um was, was there anything else that anyone no, needed to say about the advice? Let's go back to the beginning of this minute, okay. I think. So we we have... The the tail end of... The tail <laughs> end <laughs> of Ursula's transformation. Yes. And I just wanted to point out that the necklace, the shell, turns into the... I thought that was a really nice transition um, in this minute. Um, just to, to have that, that visual signifier. It's an old school move. Um, but it's a classic for a reason, right? Like oh, having a, some sort of bright object turn into the sun or the moon in the sky. It's a match cut w- with a dissolve. Yeah. So, yeah. and those are always going to be effective. Yeah. Like, like it's a classic and they do a great job with this. Um, you know, and it, 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 it draws the connection between these scenes, um, really nicely. Now I want to pause here to talk about the transformation. We only get a shadow bit here of what she transforms into, but you can see that it is a complete transformation, reshaping her body, reshaping her structure of her face. Yeah. Hair. And yeah, it's qu- not just like Mother Gothel who gets younger. It's- and it's not just like Ariel who just gets legs. Yeah. Yes. Right. This is a, a very different transformation, which I think we mentioned earlier this week um, when we were talking to Mav. So with this entire reshaping, I want to discuss briefly why she needs to change to this, ideal of beauty, this uh, societal standard of beauty Mm -hmm. to be appealing to the prince. Well, she also needs to be younger to be able to appeal to the prince. She has magic. She can make him fall in love with her no matter what. Yeah, Yeah. I assume that it's... I mean, the reasoning for it, I mean, not super clear, but I assume she's, to some degree you know, replicating Ariel's appearance, right? Yeah. That That's some part of it. It's it's not be- complete because, because she's not doing the, the exact same hair and she's going, you know, for brunette, not redhead and all that sort of stuff. But it seems, I mean, I would assume that she's saying, it's like, okay, well, if this is what Eric likes in Ariel, like I'm going to replicate however many things so that he can reasonably assume that I am right. the right and, thing. And probably somehow she, she knows that that Eric saw Ariel because she does replicate um, the music, the music, and and the appearance of Ariel, and I think it's probably because Eric has talked about this girl, this dream girl, and he saw her, and he knows kind of what she looks like, and even with magic, he probably because she has the voice and she's singing the song mm-hmm. that um somehow she's like okay i have to have it be kind of similar yeah, yeah i think that's no, I pretty think, reasonable I he, he has like, to be drawn in a certain degree yes i like think these are some pretty fine in story reasons for it also i said like he could like ursula could enchant him no matter what but that doesn't mean she could enchant everybody to accept the appearance mm-hmm. that right. uh so like even if she showed up looking like, as, she, as she did with light, with like instead of tentacles, yeah, uh, she has to. Everyone else the, would be like, "Wait, what's going on?" Yeah, she has to to have, you know, a, a princess like appearance, and that's the deeper point I want to get to. 
which is the um, standards of beauty that the princesses represent. And Disney's gotten some flack for this, that uh, the princess brand that they've developed, some argue, puts too much focus on physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And this is a cultural thing that changes through time. When this came out, it probably wasn't as much of an issue. Within a few years, though, with the culture wars, it did become an issue of, well, how are we actually representing women to the children? Right. Are we setting up these impossible standards that then give them negative reinforcement when they can't attain those standards? Is this a problem? And uh, how do we resolve it, which no one has an answer to? Yeah, like, is there a resolution? Not exactly, because, I mean, and, you know, to, to dig into some of what you're saying, like, obviously... It's not like Disney is the sole perpetrator no, Barbie of, is the other of this big standard. Yeah, there, one there's Barbie. There's, um, you know, every every person that's put on the front of a magazine. So every magazine company is responsible for you know what they what they display, um, and and you know everyone who is involved in in generating pop culture, popularity, celebrity, all of those different facets are are going to be an element of this, including. Including the Disney princesses, and I think the Disney princesses probably get um, particular attention because of the focus towards um, pre-adolescent girls. Right, this is really foundational establishment of womanhood. No, not just that, but that it's such a big brand that oh, here's the biggest target we can mm-hmm. attack. Right, but you you see in Ursula that they can animate a different figure in. Woman. They can, but there's also another problem with that, and that uh, as Western society, at least, we equate beauty with goodness. Yeah. That if they are beautiful, therefore they are good, and anything that deviates from that uh, imagined standard of beauty is therefore evil. Mm-hmm. And so, Ursula, in her squid form or octopus form, uh, not adhering to that standard, therefore, oh, well, she's visually coded as evil because right. she's right. But um, another thing I want to point out is that you you have all these these princesses now um, and at this point it was only this was the fourth princess. It was mm-hmm. Snow White, Cinderella, and Aurora, and now Ariel. And so at this point of the of, of Disney they had other small smaller characters. I, I, I bet that they hadn't really established it as the um, the marketing brand that yes. it is now, and so the establishment exactly. of that as a brand. I mean, Tinkerbell at some point was she um, was a princess until and, she was and, becoming bigger thing, and they're like, oh, we should create Disney fairies. Yeah, and they wanted to use her more as iconography for the company, um, sort of like the song "When You Wish Upon a Star" became yes. iconography for the company. Mm-hmm. It, it expands well beyond the the film and everything, and so um, so for Ariel, I mean, by the time we're dealing with Little Mermaid really early on in that cultural, um, even awareness of Disney having that much impact. I mean, they really didn't have that much impact at the time. I mean, they had been making animals, you know, yes. for, for 20 years yeah. as the primary um, protagonist. And so you don't have that, that fixation of like, well, this is where people are establishing role models and, and yeah, checkpoints. I, I, and, I'm and bringing so, up this up as a discussion of post but what are, Little yeah, Mermaid, what are, not... The moment Little Mermaid. Right. Yeah, and they probably out. didn't learn any lessons about it. No. Really, until and they, the they 2000s. They probably didn't yeah. really know what they were talking about because, like, it, like again, it wasn't really an established um, form of, of popularity that mm-hmm. we have now. And the yeah. cultural sensitivity yes. to it really yeah. Yeah. takes now, place in, in the 2000s, 2010s. And so, so but, I do want to have this discussion be post 
Little Mermaid, not just yes. about Little but Mermaid. But now we're getting into um, characters, princesses specifically, that um, are not specifically white. We have Moana. We have, uh, on Disney Junior, we have um, Elena. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, um, this is part of the conscious branding yes. effort to expand. Yeah, and they're forming, and, and, and we're, we're next year, or next year? Yeah, March of 2021, we're coming out with Raya. Um, and then there's works. Um, we don't know a lot about it, but there are works of a female, we don't know if it's heroine or princess, mm-hmm. but um, a Latin American, mm-hmm. or is, was it Latin American? I don't remember. Um, I can't remember exactly. Specifically, but, but, we're really early on in yes, the, the establishment but of what's going to be going. Miranda's working on it, mm-hmm. um, and so it might, and, be, and it so, might be Central America. But I, that I, sounds. I vaguely recall Colombia. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, so yeah, so like somewhere in, in the in the Latin America so far. region. Yeah. Um, but with Moana, you don't see this stick stick thin, uh, very small. Waste yeah. that yeah. you see in the earlier princesses, yeah. and, so, it's a, it's a, and so you see that they are starting to create a little bit more of a difference yeah. in yeah. the way that they. Yeah. And, and I would say, um, I know that this has been a criticism that that got laid into um, Tangled and Frozen in particular was like the the like face proportions and the body proportions of the female characters compared to the male characters. Like the male characters are a little more proportional, like the size of their eyes compared to the rest of their face, the the eyes compared to other parts of their body. That's like a specific category that people say is, you know, eye size and shape and things like that. And Moana is possibly the most human looking human in yeah. in her film. You know, when you compare the male characters are um are the outlandish ones, yeah. right? Those shapes for her father and for Maui. It's like, okay, these are characterized, car- caricaturized, um, you know, versions of the Polynesian male and body. And Moana is a fairly standard, you know, realistic human shape and size, larger eyes, but that's an animation default. And it's not as strikingly, you know, unusual in, in face shape and things like that, as you would see with, uh, tangled, where it's like really narrow wrists and elbows, and Moana's like, this is realistic proportionality. And so I think they are learning, and they are trying to incorporate more uh, differences as well as a more um, a incorporated and inclusive society. In yes, this, I completely agree. Animation. Yeah, and some of some of you know very conscious now, right? They're much more conscious now, and and I should I, I feel like it's worth pointing out in. The the nineties. I mean, without being really intentional and conscious of it, they still did some really great things, right? Jasmine is you know a princess who is not white, and that's she's what the the fifth princess, sixth princess. Um, so she's in you know the first wave of Disney princesses, and um, and then you have like Mulan, not the same princess figure, right? Yeah. The the proportions and things like that. Not following the the aerial and Pocahontas. Pocahontas so would be yes. would be a but very we won't tall. talk about but the also, cultural sensitivity of Pocahontas yeah, and, we, and the reality we, of if history. If we look at all the white princesses um, and all the early princesses, you have differences in their in their heights and in their in the way that they look. Even though they are skinny, um, they they aren't. 
they aren't all the same. I mean, mm-hmm. Aurora is is very very different yeah. in in the way she's structured. And, and a lot of this goes to animation styles and things like yes, that, exactly. which which fits so, into era and and expectations of beauty and all that. And I would say no worse than the general Hollywood baseline and, for expectations yeah. of beauty and figure and 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 certainly. Better in some ways than Hollywood because it didn't force any individual person to have to maintain standards of beauty yeah. through manipulation, through through pharmaceuticals, through diet, and and all these things. Like there were some people who were just wrung out physically yeah. to to do this sort of stuff. And, and so, like when we have animation, we can say like look, we're drawing a character. Yes, they're fitting you know X standard of beauty. We've got twelve different princesses, so there's a few different varieties that you can deal with. And it wasn't until recently, within the last 10 years, probably probably, um, more within the last five years, that magazines and ads weren't, are now using um, more uh, different bodies and and Body positivity is a recent trend. Yeah, it Mm -hmm. is a recent trend. And so I think that because of that, Disney is now like learning from that yeah. as well, or incorporating that into their their work. Yes, and I think one of the problems with the argument at, at all of, that that the princes have too much focus on physical beauty is that kind of absolutism of it is that when it would, when uh, critics were targeting that they said, "Oh, the princess brand has this problem." Therefore, the entire brand is problematic. Yeah, yeah. And it, it really not toxifies the, the entire. Yeah, so you're not seeing the positivity that. As you've discussed, Disney's actively trying to bring across, mm-hmm. but uh, that's just looking at the standards of physical beauty. But what other positive messages do the princesses, do the princess brand bring? Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of focus on courage, courage and bravery, kindness. Um, there's a, a lot of focus on hard work, um, especially in. Uh, I mean, so not, and Cinderella. Yeah, and Tiana. I mean, Tiana is is like the paragon of working hard for something that you believe in right and and so that would be a really really distinctive one um finding yourself finding yourself that you're not just this cookie cutter kind of personality Mm -hmm. um tangled i think is is a a really strong one for standing up for yourself i mean that's that's i think one of the most impactful moments in in the film is when rapunzel is standing up to her abuser uh and establishing like no I am embracing my identity and I'm not going to tolerate the abuse yeah. um, any longer. And I think that's a very significant one. And, and is it like, I mean, it's a really dark sequence in the film, but it's a really dark topic that affects a lot of people. Um, and having that kind of example where it's like, Hey, if somebody's mistreating you, you can stand up to them. Yeah. Um, and so you have features like that. Um, well, I think with little mermaid, we have an example of how important communication is. Uh, yeah. But actually, through a negative example that Ariel and Triton can't communicate and express what, like, Triton can't express why he finds humans problematic, and Ariel can't express why she finds them fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so that drives them apart. Yeah. So it's, yeah, a, ne- it's a negative example, but it's still an important message. Yeah, and, and if you're looking for positive messages, you will find them in all of the same sources that you will find negative messages yeah. if you're looking for it. So if you if you want to be looking for places you can identify oh, these are negative messages that are being sent to young girls. I'm like, I guarantee you, you will find them in, in every single, you know, Disney movie, every single uh, well, it's TV show, culture. right? Like, you're going to find popular these culture things, in general. and you're going to say, okay, well, look look at this. They're showing, you know, X, Y, Z. Isn't that terrible? And it's like, okay, but they're showing a lot of things, right? Each of these movies is containing a lot of ideas, and a lot of words, a lot of phrases, a lot of 
actions by every character, there is not one thing that a person can gain from it. There are many things that many people will gain at different times and all this stuff. And so if you want to observe, like you said, and I appreciate you saying like, okay, let's talk about some of the positives. Like, yeah, let's talk about some of the positives. And it it took us 10 seconds to find a dozen of them. But with all the negative stuff as well, you can also learn from that Mm -hmm. and teach your children to learn from that. Like in Little Mermaid with Ariel and Triton not communicating very well, you realize that as a parent, you do need to communicate. Mm-hmm. You can't really hide all this. And you all need this to try stuff. and understand. And you need to understand. Understanding your child and letting them talk is really important mm-hmm. because otherwise they're going to feel like Ariel and they're going to feel like you're not listening and you can't listen and and they're going to disobey you and possibly cut you out of your very lives yeah. and, and all that. You have to listen and you have to communicate. Yeah, there will there will always be more resentment from a child who feels like they didn't have their side heard, right? Yes. And so, like, every time you see in movies and, and TV, every parent who says, I don't want to hear it, here's your punishment, and they just hand it out, and you see the resentment build, and that always makes things worse. And if you look at those same situations and you say, okay, well, like, Picture the parent just listening to the child explain their their dumb teenage brain philosophy on why this was the decision that had to be made, even though you're like, this was a dumb decision and somebody got hurt and all these kinds of things. And you have these examples. Um, If the teenager gets to explain themselves and the parent says, great, thanks for telling me, you are grounded for two weeks. Or or the parents say... All right, thank you. Here's why I'm grounding you for yeah, two weeks. It's like, okay, you like, need to understand that was, yeah. that was not a responsible decision to make. Somebody got hurt, and yeah, you're going to be grounded because there's consequences for your actions. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you could explain yourself to me, but, that's, but even just that, that small moment of, okay, I'm not going to shut you down. I am going to listen to you explain yourself. And then you are still going to have the exact same consequence, right? Even if it's the exact right. same. Hopefully but now just be quiet and have them talk to you. You need to have a conversation yeah. with them mm-hmm. to make them see that you are listening. You're not just being quiet and tuning and, uh, and, like, you're listening and try and make sure they, they're listening and understand why they're getting this consequence. Yes. That's not just, oh, okay, I, I, I've heard you. Here's your consequences. Like, okay, now let's talk about why that... Totally critical. Yeah, these consequences from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important because, like I said, when you have this criticism of looking just at the princess brand with body image, those critics paint the whole brand with that brush and say, oh, if this one one problem, that means everything's problematic. But they also assume that everyone is receiving that message the same way. That, oh, I see this problem, therefore everyone's going to see this problem. Yeah, where, yeah. No, that everyone's going to receive a different message from this from this product, and it's positive, it's negative. It's, I mean, it's you can't. It's say, part of life. Yeah, you can't predict how someone's going to respond to it. Yeah. Now, I want to invert this for a second. Uh, we talked a lot about the princess brand. Why did the princes not receive the same criticism? This is a moment of of Eric as a paragon of male beauty. Of yep. masculine beauty, you have this great moment of him uh, leaning forward, he's, one he's one brooding, with one his leg dark up, as, as leaning on that leg, cape billowing behind him. Mm-hmm. This is a moment of him as this ideal of masculine beauty. Why don't the princes get the same criticism? I think a big part of it is that the brand is not like 
represented over and over mm-hmm. again. You don't have that constant reiteration of like, okay, here's their presence. Um, and I think part of it is um, it just culturally the, the like physical standards for male, male and female uh, body the male tends to be like less specified into like these detailed parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the female is like, okay, it's a specific type of figure. It's not just being thin, but it has to be the proportions um, and, and all those things. And so you have so many additional facets yeah. of that attention that gets drawn. Um, I'd say that's, that would be a, a big one, right? If the, if all the princes were specifically addressed to have, you know, or, or I mean, culturally, if, if men, you know, this is, the you know the the shoulder waist and hips ratio because those kinds of things get thrown out for women yeah and mm-hmm. it's it's completely different but i do think i do think that in the next few years uh you might see some things popping up where people are starting to judge on on not just disney but all all animated um films with that how they how they portray portray um, men especially because just recently male body positivity is now starting to come out mm-hmm. more and more yeah. because there are different sizes and shapes in, in men as well. And, but we do see a, dif- a bit of a difference um, in, in how men are portrayed. Yeah. And it wasn't until this film that they really realized that they, they can, they can animate men because <laughs> well, you're saying they didn't animate Prince Philip over. In they, the well, so, so uh, princes especially, but like all, figures were very difficult for early animators to to it wasn't it wasn't consistent yeah and that's why you see most most of the princes um, especially in snow white and cinderella have not been in the film as much as they probably should have yeah and you actually end up in in the early animation you know the male figures that are going to be animated are pretty significantly distorted right if you take the kings in sleeping beauty right hyper thin and it's like okay this is ridiculously thin willowy um, guy and a really round, like they're drawing a circle, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, okay, we don't have to do anything that's realistic. They don't have to be attractive. Um, and, and so you've got things like that, um, coming into play. And, and also I think, again, back to like the societal expectations, like society's much more accepting of more different shapes for men, generally speaking, you know, they, the, the cookie cutters, for acceptable male figures are going to be more varied than the cookie cutters for quote, quote acceptable. I'm not saying that these are actual like acceptability standards, but um, expectations for beauty standards, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to have, you know, a very societal societally, you know, you can think of reasonable thin male figures that are good and, and broad male figures that are good and tall and um, stocky, right. And all those kinds of things. And there's not as much focus on like, nope, this is a really narrow window. And that window is a lot more narrow or has been a lot more narrow um, culturally for uh, the female body yes, figures. Yes. You know, like it, it is like pretty precise about certain things, not too tall, not too short, um, you know, not too thick here or thin there and all those kinds of things. And, and like, these are all problematic things, but I think that's why the princes would not get the same type of criticism. And you probably have somewhat greater variety in them. Um, you know, Prince Philip is not as broad shouldered as you would mm-hmm. think of the, the, you know, heroic man. Right. Yeah. Um, and then Kristoff is like a pretty big guy, you know, as, as far as that goes, he's, he's stouter. Well, um, you, you brought up earlier with Moana, they are 
also diversifying the male figure. Yeah. In the films. Yeah. Uh, should we get back to the <laughs> <a> This <laughs> was a, a big uh, draw away. Um, I just want to talk about the music just just a little bit. So we we have um, Eric playing the the uh, recorder. It's about to call it flute. I'm a flautist, and I know it's not a flute. Um, and it's not even the same direction. Nope, <laughs> it's not. And well, if you want to get into the history of <laughs> instrument will, design, we will, not, we, will, we will not talk about that right now. There's, um, there's going to be like a lot of instruments and pipes during Fantasia. Yes. So he's playing the the song that he heard Ariel singing to him, and. Uh, part of your world, and then he stops playing, and he's just staring out at the the ocean, brooding. I, I brooding. like this is this is heavy brooding. The yes. color palette has and shifted. I'm actually, with sure. the cape building behind him, this is Batman brooding. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm not even sure that his shirt is white anymore. I like no, I don't know. A, like, I don't know if that shirt. is definitively like a blue or a gray shirt. Or if that's just supposed to be in the dark, his white shirt looks this color. It's like, I, but I think but I, I think it's he, a I blue did, or a gray shirt. I think he changed from his morning dress to his evening dress. Right. And this is the evening colors. <laughs> um, but back to my point. <laughs> um, the orchestra underneath starts playing the part of your world um, as he's brooding, and the in the commentary on our Blu-ray disc, uh, the commentators, which were John, Ron, and Alan, were talking, I think it was Alan specifically at this point, was talking about how he wanted it to be like a music box, and I thought he did really well making it sound like a music box. Yeah, that does fit really well. Um, And I like that they are using the aerial part of your world theme to kind of sit in for the the thought process that he's having, right? The music is doing the thinking for you where it's like yeah. working into this. And he's like, okay, he's thinking about, you know, these things and he's committing to it. And it like, it, it conveys that, right? Yeah. The music communicates this to you. And then you get to the end of this minute where we hear, um, well, as after Grimsby's advice and you hear a build up and it's um, building up one note at a time. Um, it's, and then it goes into the vocalizing um, of, I'm just going to say it, it's Vanessa on the beach with Ariel's voice. Uh, That's right. Jody Benson <laughs> voicing both of them. Yes, Jody Benson voices both. I think probably, possibly the only voice actor who has been both a Disney hero or a Disney princess and a Disney villain. Yeah, probably. I think so. And in the same film. I mean, maybe well, there's been well, maybe, mimicry, but... Okay, because this, this... I mean, you kind of have Idina Menzel, but she's not, like, exactly a villain, but it's just, like, not... In... An enchanted... She's an antagonist, not a villain. Yeah, she's not the villain. And enchanted. then you have... And then you have her as Elsa. But that, that's a completely That would be maybe one of, one of the closest. Yes, um, that's a completely different uh, and, and, topic. Anyways, back to the music. Um... Then we have, uh, and I really liked that build-up, and I thought it kind of sounded similar to the 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 odds that we hear. And I wanted to point out that our almost three-year-old daughter loves to sing along with these vocalizing she likes the, She likes the vocalizing moments, there. So I just well, wanted to give a shout-out to her. Since you brought up the example, I will say, uh, watching it this time, I thought that Vanessa looked like Adina Menzel. <laughs> I, I think there's, I mean, like, dark-haired and singing, there's a lot to be said for, like, Adina Menzel is one of the 
iconic dark-haired singers um, yes. of I stage and screen at this point. I think there's more to it than that. I think they were. I mean, they would be very. Were, I think they were very pre- far ahead of their time. I think they were precogs over there. <laughs> they were. A, I mean, a dec- almost a decade and a half ahead of their time. Yeah, that in point. that case, as though Disney's like never been ahead of its time. But I, I can see how, like, actually, Vanessa does have a little bit of a yeah. Dina Menzel quality, right? There's similarities in in that, obviously not intentional, or, but. Because Dina Menzel modeled herself after Vanessa. After Vanessa. <laughs> mm. uh, any other notes on on today's minute? I just want to point out that Ariel is using a dingle hopper again. She's she's sticking with it. She knows how to use that thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll talk about her hair tomorrow and establish like, hey, maybe it's working. <laughs> um, uh, briefly, I want to mention that I think the animators did a great job on the sfumato, the fog effect that over the scene. That's fair. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, like doing a foggy scene, there's tricks to it. Yeah, I, I wondered about how they exactly do it. And I say sfumato, it might not be the actual term that they want to use. That's the Renaissance term for yeah. that sort of effect. Now, do I, mean, I don't know if you discussed this before, about uh, the environment this castle's in. Oh, we've talked about so, it. So, like, what kind of plants are they actually growing there in this salty breeze? But also... We haven't talked about the plant life. Because not, they, not that part they of the They have bio. a bridge, like this bridge out into the ocean where it's just tree-lined. Yes, we've mm-hmm. talked about that. Wait, yeah. The, the palace, it's an, it's an interesting palace. Now, oh, yeah, we've so, talked about how we, it, like, this is supposed to place, take place in Denmark, but... Theoretically. But then it looks more like Mediterranean. So we're we're arguing for, uh, I mean, I don't know what we're arguing for, but I think we are leaning towards Mediterranean. Yes. Southern France. Uh, Maybe Italy. Something like that. Or Greece. Greece. I mean, there's there's like Grecian elements of the architecture. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so we'll go with Mediterranean, you know, annex of Denmark. So with that, we have this castle that is built into the ocean. Do you think it would still survive to today? Um, I mean, it seems like it's definitely intended to deal with tides. That's what, like, that's what we assume oh, the bridge is yeah, for. Yeah, it deals with tides, but for... we'll deal with tides for hundreds of years. Well, actually, we assume that this is taking place in the late 1800s, so it would probably be fine. Um, it probably would have been maintained uh, up to today as, as like, a national landmark or something like that, okay. um, or, or a tourist destination. But, yeah, we're pegging this in, like, the 1870s, 1880s. Um, just that's pretty late because he would have written this in the 1830s. So we well, yeah, well but, Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, for for right. adaptation, they must have yes. shifted it. I mean, there's a bust of Abraham Lincoln in Ariel's Grotto, so <laughs> yeah, we've we, talked, we've, we've got to narrow some things down. And then there there was talk about some fashion things and some other things that well, just make and it the, seem the ships. more and the ships that make it seem like we were originally I think it was like the 1840s, 18. 18- 1830s, mm-hmm. 1840s. But, but we've been narrowing it down. We, we were like, okay, now it's the 1860s, and now we're pretty sure it's right. the 1860s. Ar- Ariel's fashion is pretty fast and loose. That one doesn't track, no. but Eric's fashion and some of the other features we've been able to say is like, okay, we're going to call this like 1870s, 1880s. Well, if it's it, definitely it, not the French coast because they went to had a monarchy. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, I mean, well, his, his monarchical family is. All kinds of stuff. But it could be located on the French coast, right? It, it's just a separate yeah. kingdom. I mean, we got to make up some stuff for these things. Um, these countries aren't real. <laughs> Disney World, not Earth. So you're saying the French Revolution didn't happen in the Disney World? Uh, not. I mean, I don't know. I don't, but, I don't think they had a France. But but maybe no, this is... we have the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Notre Dame is, is definitely true. French. That is... That is 
quintessentially in a different place. I don't um, know. But but maybe in Disney World, Disney World <laughs> World, <laughs> yeah. um, not Walt Disney World. The country of France has a small country on, like a very small country on part of the coast. Yes. Um, or or you know Disney Italy or Disney Greece or something like that. You know we can we can make up extra countries because Arendelle, not a real place, uh, based on certain things. But yeah, Corona, not a real place. Um, all those sorts of things. So we're basing these in distinctive areas, but not Louisiana, not a real place. <laughs> clearly, not. <laughs> um, how how could it be? It was so magical. All right, we're good. That's all we have for you today, listeners. We're part of Dueling Genre, and you can find us and many other podcasts at DuelingGenre.com. There you can also find a link to a Patreon page where you can support all the Dueling Genre productions. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, on email as DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society or Damsels Group. John, is there any particular place that you want to direct our listeners to? Uh, you can sometimes hear me on the Protagonist podcast and on mm-hmm. Fox podcast. That's true. Yeah, both good podcasts. I've been on them, and we've had guests from them. I mean, Mav I've from, been on them. Mav from from Fox Popcast was our guest earlier this week, so we are we are hitting that territory. Until next time, listeners. Thank you for making us part of your world. <laughs> <laughs>